Father, we ask that you'd humble us to hear the truth of your word, to receive it now. And Lord, we ask that you would change us by what we hear. Lord, I ask for your help to preach faithfully and clearly and joyfully to proclaim what is true. And Lord, we ask for the help of your spirit, Lord, that your son Jesus would be exalted in this time, that we would be built up as your people, as a church, and that anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus as their Savior, Lord, that you would lead them to saving faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is a growing church? I've asked that before. I've asked that before in our sermon series here in 1 Thessalonians, and we're back today in 1 Thessalonians in our last sermon. It's a fitting question to ask, what is a growing church? Is a growing church merely a church that is increasing numerically in size, where the building is getting more full, it's more difficult to find a seat on Sunday mornings? Is a growing church one where families and young children are starting to come once again? Well, those are all good things. Certainly numbers are not unimportant, but they're not the most important thing or the only metric in determining what a growing church is. And one way for us to know what a growing church looks like is to look at these New Testament letters, to look at what the Apostle Paul was praying for these churches, what he was longing to see happen in these churches, what he was asking God to do in the lives of his redeemed people, to look at his prayers, and then to look at his instruction. So where we're at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the very end, it's the final instructions. And kind of those final instructions, almost like the commencement addresses that we've seen this weekend, final instructions to graduates before they prepare to go out into the real world. Think about this letter this morning, final instructions to Christians as Paul signs off on this letter, the instructions he gave to the Thessalonians, useful and helpful for us as a church this morning. What we see this morning, what God wants for His people is that they grow together in holiness. It's part of the final instructions that they would pray together, that they would receive God's Word together, and together that they grow in trusting God and His faithfulness as their assurance. It's our last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 28, the final verses. Turn with me now if you haven't already done so in your copy of God's Word. If you need a Bible this morning, take that Bible right in front of you in the pew rack. You can open it to page 988, page 988. We're going to be in verses 16 through 28 of chapter 5. And let me read all of that as we begin this morning. Starting in verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
Well, the main idea of this last part of 1 Thessalonians 5 is this, if you want to write this down and take notes, the main idea, we grow in holiness through constant prayer, careful discernment, and comforting assurance. We grow in holiness through constant prayer, careful discernment, and comforting assurance. That's what we see in this passage this morning. Now, last week we were in verses 12 through 15. That kicked off the final instructions from Paul to the Thessalonians. And it's important to keep in mind, just like last week, these commands are given to Christians, given to those who, by God's grace, have already put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So all of these commands are tied to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what that means is if you've been changed vertically in your relationship with God, that by faith in Jesus Christ, you're at peace with God, forgiven of your sins, filled with His righteousness, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, well, then things change horizontally. You're reconciled first and foremost to the holy God who created you, only by faith in Jesus. But then there's a second set of relationships you're reconciled to. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, your church family, for you Oakhurst Baptist Church, specifically these other members of a local church. And so these final instructions talk about how we are to live life together. Last week we saw how members are to relate to their pastors and how they're related to one another. This week there's instructions how to relate to God together, specifically through God's Word and through prayer and then receiving assurance from Him regularly. So this morning in verses 16 through 28, he gives them instructions on how to joyfully walk with God together. So as we make our way through this outline, I want to break down that main idea into three parts. And we're going to consider three marks of a growing church. Three marks of a growing church. The first mark in verses 16 through 18, constant prayer. The first mark of a growing church, verses 16 through 18, constant prayer. Three commands given here, short, sweet, simple, verses 16 through 18. Each of them have to do with the life of the church as it pertains to prayer. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. All of these actions are, are God's will for His people who are in Christ Jesus. So let's look at these one by one. First, the first instruction is to rejoice, which means to be glad. It means to be joyful in the Lord. So, so be glad, be joyful, rejoice always. Now, now rejoicing is something that's external. So as you were just singing and and praising God, I trust that you were rejoicing. You were singing out of gladness of heart. Rejoicing is external, and it comes from a heart of joy from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God putting joy in the hearts of Christians. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, joy is mentioned as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Something the Holy Spirit, He produces in the lives of every Christian. Now, you may read this and think, well, this sounds great. Uh, rejoice always, sure. Like, sign me up for that, but how is that even possible? I mean, some of you had hard weeks this week. 
hard to rejoice. For some, and I mentioned earlier, Mother's Day is hard. Some of you are mourning the loss of your mom, and I, I am so sorry. We certainly don't rejoice in hardship itself. We don't rejoice in death. We don't rejoice in, in wickedness. That's not what this is saying. We don't rejoice in circumstances. We rejoice in the God who reigns above all of our circumstances, the God who sovereignly rules over everything and every one. So this doesn't mean that you deny your feelings. It doesn't mean that you ignore hardships in your life and just act like they're not happening because you're just supposed to be happy. That's not what rejoice always means. You see, in joy and in hardship in life, and even in this passage here, we see that joy and hardship, they sit side by side in the Christian life. There's tension there, but the Scripture is okay with that, meaning we can have both. We can know true joy even as we know hardship. I mean, think about how Jesus directed in the Sermon on the Mount, how He gave direction to those who were suffering persecution. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's not a good day. I mean, that's a hard, hard day, hardship. You'll feel the weight of that persecution. It's not like persecution's fun and suffering is the day you were dreaming of. Rather, verse 12, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in, in a gift that cannot be taken away from you. Everything you have in this life can be taken away from you quickly. Everything you've worked for can disappear. It could be here one minute, gone the next. When we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, we saw that. Don't presume upon the future. Enjoy God's daily gifts. Walk in wisdom and in fear before Him. Rejoice in Christ, not in your circumstances. Rejoice in Christ, not merely in His gifts. We don't rejoice in persecution. We don't rejoice in suffering and hardship itself. We rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even think about what the gospel is. So that word, it certainly means good news. But from Luke chapter 2, verse 10, it's good news that will cause great what? Joy. Good news that brings and causes great joy. The greatest joy is knowing God. The greatest joy you can possibly know is Jesus Christ, who God is for us in Him. There is great joy in being forgiven of your sin against the God who created you. And it's all a gift from Jesus. Knowing the good news of Jesus, it brings joy to the heart of Christians. Singing like we do on Sunday mornings about the blood of Jesus Christ given for us, His death and His resurrection, it brings us joy. We're reminded joyfully of Jesus, that He loves us, and He laid down His life to die for us on the cross to pay for our sins, that He rose from the dead on the third day for us and for our salvation, that we might be saved from God's wrath and His judgment against sin. By the grace of God, for those who've repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven of our sins against God Nothing can change us. No one can take us out of His hand. And that brings us 
joy. Joy in God and who He is and what He's done and Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that joy, meaning you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can know that joy today. You can receive the joy of knowing God if you would repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ today. You can know the joy of having your sins forgiven. You can know the joy of an eternal destiny secure in heaven. You can know the joy of being ready all by God's grace on that day when Jesus returns and you stand before him. If you've come today, and maybe you're just here because you're with mom today, and I'm glad you are. This could be a day where you know joy in Jesus. And I would encourage you, if your mom knows the Lord, if she's a member of this church, talk to her. Talk to her about what it would look like to know Jesus today. Talk to any of our pastors at the door on the way out. We'll be at every door. Talk to any member here about what it would look like to become a Christian today. You see, worldly joy, it's a joy that's experienced really only when things seemingly go well. Joy in health and strength and possessions. Yet yeah, yeah, joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, it goes beyond those moments. It never leaves you behind so that you have joy even in suffering. You see, Christian, you can rejoice in all circumstances, even in the midst of difficulties in life, because Christ is with you. It's a great promise there in Matthew 28, verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's never a moment that Christ is not with us. And if Christ is with us, that means joy and peace and grace and strength and help from the throne of God is always ours in Jesus. That means His Spirit will continually fill our hearts with joy. Are you characterized as a person who rejoices. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill your heart with joy. It's a wonderful prayer. Ask Him to fill your heart with joy and to lead you to rejoice in Him. Well, as we rejoice in all situations, we'll follow the, the next two commands in verses 17 and, and 18. Pray for what you need. Give thanks for what you have. Look forward and pray for what you need. Look back and thank God for what you have. Now, even the prayer warriors among us may hear the call in verse 17 to pray without ceasing and think, well, how is that possible? Even the, the prayer warriors among us, you sleep. You go to bed at night. So even if you pray for 16 hours, there's eight hours you're sleeping. If you've figured out how to pray while sleeping, please come teach us all how to do that. That would be awesome. Right? So, so it can't mean like every minute of every day because that would mean we'd have to learn how to pray in our sleep. Now these words without ceasing, they're used in, in the same literal sense that, that always and all circumstances are used here in this passage. It means pray in all sorts of circumstances. Pray constantly. It's an attitude in prayer. So without ceasing, it's literal sense, I think it's hyperbole, meaning something like pray without fail. It's what Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 1. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
Meaning that in the life of a Christian, prayer should be common and it should be constant in our lives. So, so pray without ceasing means that prayer is not limited to certain hours. So if the only time that you pray is before dinner and at church, that's not praying without ceasing. We, we want our service to be, to be filled with prayer. We, we long for that to happen. We say this a lot. We're not looking for prayer really just to be a smooth transition for musicians to step down off the stage. It's part of our worship. We want to pray together as a church that it might lead us to be more prayerful in our everyday lives. If you pray in the morning during your devotion, that's a wonderful start to the day. It's a wonderful way to start your day. It's just to take some time in the morning and to pray. But if that's the last time you pray until before dinner, I don't think that's praying without ceasing either. It means have an attitude of prayer continually. You know, we see that in the story of Nehemiah. He was standing before King Artaxerxes, getting ready to ask a a big request. We went through this sermon series a long time ago. He's getting ready to ask for the support of a pagan king and rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And he stood there silently and prayed a very brief prayer for the Lord's help. I think that shows us an attitude of prayer. That we're regularly, our hearts are pointed towards heaven in prayer. Somebody I learned from is a prayerful person. I realized, you know, he, he, he didn't like stop and just always pray for an hour at a time. It's good to do that. It's good to pause and pray for long periods of time, which by the way, the only way I'm really able to accomplish that is when I pray with others. So, so pray with others. If you want to pray for an hour, a good way to do that, pray with other Christians. Get a lunchtime prayer group going. Pray on the weekends. Commit to praying together, and I think you'll see, wow, we can pray for longer periods of time even as we commit to do that with one another. But this brother, he didn't have that so much what I saw in his life, but he was always praying. Whether it was short prayers, brief prayers, sentence prayers, let's pause and pray. It was just that attitude of, of prayer. Certainly, you don't have to have your eyes closed while you're praying because that would mean you can't drive while praying. And if you pray while driving, please keep your eyes open. But you can have an attitude of prayer, praying for what you're driving to, whether that's work or school, whether you're heading back home at the end of a long day, asking for God's help and for his strength and for his wisdom. But see, I think we have to have the right perspective on prayer. I love the ACTS prayer model. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that, ACTS, A-C-T-S. It's a wonderful prayer model. We, we see it present in our service. It's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's great, but let me tell you a downside to practicing that prayer model and, and being too rigid with it. Downside, being too rigid, thinking, well, before I get to supplication, I've got to adore, confess sin, think. I've got to do that before I get to supplication. And I think if you're thinking about prayer like that, you're missing out on what prayer is. You see, I understand pray without ceasing. This is speaking to prayers of supplication. He just mentioned rejoicing and praising, and then he next mentions thanking God and prayer. This is specifically aimed at asking God, petitioning him, prayers of supplication. And if you have the mindset, well, I can't ask for too much, I can't ask too often, I can't ask too boldly, your perspective on prayer needs to change. One confession puts it like this about prayer, ancient confession, that prayer is lifting up our desires to God. In other words, it's asking God for things. And sometimes I wonder if Christians, if you're too shy about that, well, I shouldn't ask for too much. I don't want to out, out, outdo my welcome here. That's a wrong view of prayer. 
You see, we have to understand our prayers please God. When we come to him and lift up needs and desires and requests, he's honored. He is pleased. He welcomes that. You can go read Luke 18 later, this call to persistent prayer, that God is a good God. He's a father in heaven. He's not like earthly parents where sometimes we get worn out by our children and continue to ask us for things and we just need a little bit of a break. God's not like that. He invites us to persistently and constantly wear him out in prayer. You see, prayer puts our problems into perspective. God is bigger than my problems. Prayer puts our needs into perspective. God's bigger than my needs. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What feels so big and challenging in my life, and it is big, it's just so small to God. Such a small thing for him to answer. He's the God who created the universe by the power of his word. Do we think there's possibly a request we can bring to him that he wonders, I don't know what to do with that one. That's going to be too much for me. No. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's how we get about praying without ceasing, is that we understand who God is. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you relate to him as a father. He loves to hear the prayers of his people. Well, I wonder how often you go to other people about your problems rather than to God in prayer. It's easy to do. It's easy to tell others about what we need or what we want. And maybe even go to them more than we go to God. What a friend we have in Jesus. He'll bear all of our burdens. There's nothing that's too much him. Oh, what pain we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Brothers and sisters, let's ask God for a more prayerful attitude in our hearts. Finally, as you pray for what you need, verse 18 instructs us, give thanks for what you have. It's easy to look forward to what we need and be focused on that, but how often do we look back on what we've already been given? You see, give thanks in all circumstances is the call of a Christian. What do you say when someone gives you a gift? Mothers, you might have already said this today when you received a gift. Thank you. Just a common response. You get a gift? Thank you. What do we say to God as we recognize his gift? Thank you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your kindness and your grace. And so many just common gifts you'd give us, if nothing else, for our joy and our enjoyment. God, thank you for what you've given me. I wonder how often you're zoomed in on what you need, and therefore you you miss what you've already been given. I mentioned this a a while back, a a wonderful place to start in thanking God is for your salvation. And when I write these sermons, I try to apply them before I preach them to you. So the questions I'm asking, I ask them to myself during the week or even on Saturday night or Sunday morning when I'm in my office preparing for this. And one of the things, I forget when it was, but it was probably about a month ago in one of these sermons, I mentioned about thanking God for your salvation in the morning in your devotion. I've been doing that. And let me tell you, the joy, just for pausing and thanking God for what He's already done, what is already sure, what is already secure, my salvation in Christ, 
it just puts so many other things in perspective. When you realize God's loving pursuit of you, it is His joyful, gentle hand that led you to faith in Jesus Christ, Him sustaining you by the power of His Holy Spirit, it has a, a, an issue there, or an opportunity rather, to point us to peace found in Christ. For those who are in Christ, we know that we're entirely undeserving of God's goodness, entirely undeserving of His grace. When we were living in sin, rebelling against Him and His authority, breaking His commandments, enjoying sin and not loving Him, God saved us. He sent His Son Jesus to die for us. We were entirely undeserving of the eternal Son of God coming down to earth and willingly facing punishment dying on the cross and being treated as a public criminal for our sins, rising from the dead for our forgiveness. What the Old Testament saints longed for and looked forward to, the Spirit of God being given to all of God's people, we know this in Jesus Christ, all of us, all of the church. We have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to rejoice in how good God has been to us. And you can start there every morning, the, the joy of your salvation, and then just work forward. You have a roof over your head. Even if you don't have much, you've got things in your house, food, possessions. You've got church family. You've got those here who, who love you and pray for you and care for you. You can just keep on working your way out. Thanking God in all circumstances. Think about how that contributes to us rejoicing in God. Brothers and sisters, may we give ourselves to walking in the will of the Lord, which very plainly is spelled out here by rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. That is God's will for you and for me. We see a second mark of a discerning, of a growing church rather, in verses 19 through 22. A second mark of a growing church, verses 19 through 22, careful discernment. Careful discernment. There's five commands in this section. All five commands have to do with the gift of prophecy. So let me say up front, we've got to think carefully about this, this gift as we consider what was happening there in Thessalonica with the original audience, and then what's happening in the life of churches today with the audience who's hearing this letter today. So let me explain what was happening there and Thessalonica with the original audience, and then we'll consider how that relates to churches today. So Paul wrote this letter at the very beginning of Christianity. He wrote to some of the first Christians there, the Thessalonians. And at that time, the New Testament scriptures were not yet completed. And Paul was writing scripture right here in First Thessalonians, his first letter to them. So at that time, God was using two temporary offices as his mouthpiece. God has never left his people without his word. And those two temporary offices, the apostles and the prophets, two offices by which God would speak his word to them, the apostles, like Paul here, and the prophets, and they would go and speak the word of God to his people. And we read about those two offices in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself 
being the cornerstone. Jesus, the cornerstone of the church, his death and resurrection, the cornerstone of the church, the foundation was laid, the very beginning of the church, through the apostles and the prophets. Now, in the time period of the Old Testament, I'm sure you're aware there were prophets there, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Obadiah, so on. You could list out those prophets we see in the Old Testament books. But there were also prophets early on in the life of the church, even in the New Testament time period, before the New Testament was completed. Those prophets worked alongside the apostles, God using them as He gave them His Word to speak to His people. So you can read in a number of different places in the book of Acts about these prophets. One place is Acts chapter 11, 27 through 30, a prophet there named Agabus who came and prophesied to the church. So we see that described and it happening there very early on in the life of the church. Now once the foundation was laid, just like a building, a foundation is laid and the building is built up. Once the foundation of the church was laid, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the gift of apostleship ceased. So we're not expecting apostles today. I'm not an apostle. Sorry to disappoint you. We don't have apostles today. We have elders. We see those New Testament offices of elder and deacon. We don't have qualifications given for apostles. We'd expect that if that was an ongoing office, we'd find uh, first off, description to expect that, but then also qualifications given for how to recognize that. This was a temporary office, the apostles and the prophets. Today, we have God's completed word. He has spoken. He has told all of His people what it is we need to know. What He has to say is contained here in the pages of the Bible, and therefore we look to His word every Sunday morning. This is what the Lord has said. So the application of this passage to the church today, it will look somewhat different. The original audience, they had to be on the guard for false prophets. We must be on the guard for false teachers. Two different things. So let's think about this, the, the clear distinction from the five commands in verses 19 through 22. It's this, twofold, guard the truth and reject false teaching. They needed to guard the truth against false prophets and reject false prophets. We need to guard the truth to make sure we understand and live in light of sound doctrine contained in God's Word. And we need to reject false teaching that sounds like Christian teaching but twists the truth and leads away from Jesus and His Word. The first two commands in verses 19 through 20 can be summed up, guard the truth. Two commands stayed in the negative, 1920, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. To, to quench means to put out, to put out a, a fire. Other places in Scripture, the Holy Spirit of God, like in Luke chapter 3, Jesus compares the spirit to fire. Now, to be clear, Paul is not suggesting that somehow you can put out the fire of the Holy Spirit. This language, rather, makes the point, don't resist the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the work of the Holy Spirit by despising or rejecting His Word. Do not quench the Spirit. Instead, receive true teaching. So, so look to the Word of God for wisdom and encouragement, for direction and hope. Do not despise prophecies, meaning do not reject God's Word. 
Don't neglect the Word of God. Well, the way we do this, give yourself to regularly sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's Word. That's how we guard the truth. If you're going to guard the truth, you have to know the truth. And the primary way we're called to grow together as a church is to sit under the regular preaching and teaching of God's Word. As we become more familiar with the Bible, and by the way, I I love our senior saints here who just continue to take notes in their 70s and 80s. Uh, Chuck, you even told me your mom, Edie Caldwell, that she felt like she learned more about the Bible in her last seven years here than her whole Christian life. I love that. Think about learning more and more and more about the Bible, continuing to be a student of the Bible. And that's what the local church, the life of the local church is to teach you to obey all that Christ has commanded, to teach you the Word of God. Another way that we we think about not neglecting the Word is this, open up the Bible more than just being in church on Sundays. How many days in a row after Sunday does your Bible go unopened? That's despising or neglecting the Word of God. And if that's your past week, today's a new week. It's a new opportunity. Praise God for Sunday where the Bible gets opened again. And may we ask for His help and help each other. On Monday, keep opening the Bible. It's a wonderful question to ask other people, hey, what are you learning in God's Word? What is He teaching you in the Bible? Hear the Word, read the Word, don't neglect it or ignore it. Seek to put God's Word into practice. Continuing on, we see in verses 21 through 22, there was good teaching and there was evil teaching. Therefore, they needed to reject false teaching. We see the command in verse 21 to test everything. And meaning be discerning as to what was good and what was evil. So, so test teaching to see that it lines up to the Word of God. The original audience, they had the Old Testament and they had the apostolic witness and the teaching of the apostles. Whatever prophets were traveling through town, they needed to compare that teaching with the Old Testament scriptures and the apostolic witness. For us, compare the teaching that we hear to the Word of God. That's why I love expositional preaching. We can just look at God's Word and see what's there. But there's lots of of outside type of teaching that you hear. And I think how we have to be discerning in the church today in particular is considering the teaching you're receiving from outside the local church. It seems like that was the problem with the Thessalonians as well. Back in verse 12, Paul was directing them to respect their leaders So it didn't seem like false teaching or false prophesying was coming from their leaders. It seemed like that was coming from outside the church. Otherwise, I would have expected Paul to point that out. We're blessed with resources. We really are. I'm so thankful for the books we have. We we have a number of recommended resources downstairs on the book table. Those are recommended by us, trustworthy sources. But everyone's a publisher these days. In the age of social media, everyone has a broadcast or a podcast. You buy a $99 mic on Amazon and have a wireless internet connection, and there you go. You have your own radio show. So with these resources, I think there's even a greater level of discernment that we have to have today with all these books and blogs and tweets and podcasts. One, we've been given elders of the local church to, to help God. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, we see that part of the ministry of an elder is to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
So follow the, the preaching and teaching ministry of this local church. And whatever outside resources you use, interact with elders over this. And what this means is if you're reading something like in a book and it's something different than our statement of faith, one good way to think about that is to come to an elder and say, hey, here's what I'm reading. And this is outside of the statement of faith of our church. And I'm wondering what is true. We'd love to help walk you through that. As you learn the truth, you will more easily be able to spot false teaching. So let me give you a couple ways to spot false teaching. First off, learn the truth. So if you sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word and you learn the truth, you can spot false teaching. You've probably heard me say before that I was explained that bank tellers that deal with cash, the way they recognize counterfeit money is to get so familiar with real money, the touch of it, the look of it. They don't spend their time, from what I understand in training, studying fake money. They spend their time studying real money so they can quickly spot the fake. Ways to consider false teaching. False teaching adds something to Jesus or takes away from him. Jehovah's Witness, they they don't believe Jesus is truly God. Same with liberal Protestantism. Often just deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. That is false teaching. It sounds Christian. It's talking about Jesus. But you end up getting a different Jesus when you take away that he is truly God and truly man, as he claims to be, and as Scripture clearly testifies to him. False teaching also adds something to the death and resurrection of Jesus or takes away from that. Liberal Protestantism denies a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not resurrected from the dead, go read 1 Corinthians 15. We're in a lot of trouble. It's a big deal. Sounds Christian, leads you to a different Jesus. Liberal Protestantism denies the atonement of Jesus to pay the penalty for sin, to bear God's wrath. Says that everybody is going to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's false teaching. False teaching adds something to the word or takes away from. False teaching will say, well, repentance doesn't really need to happen. We can take things off the sin list. For example, things like homosexuality. False teaching would say, well, we'll just take that off the sin list because it's acceptable in society and legally in our society, even different definitions of marriage. Some, under the name of Jesus, would say, well, that's okay. That's false teaching. It's seeking to change the Word of God. False teaching diminishes repentance, denies the existence of hell, adds to the gospel, saying there's more you must do, or changes the gospel, saying the good news is all about health and wealth and prosperity in this life, that is all false teaching. Simply put, if we're going to grow as Christians, we must test what we're taught to see that it lines up with God's Word. Hold on to what is good, what lines up with the Bible. Abstain from all that is evil. Well, having completed his final instructions, Paul closes the letter with a prayer that gives assurance. We find a third mark of a growing church here in verses 23 through 28, comforting assurance. Comforting assurance. Again, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to what? Quiz time. The return of Jesus Christ. His second coming to earth. And I ask you this question again. Is the return of Christ a part of your gospel? Is it a part of the good news that you meditate on and rejoice in and look forward to 
in hope. Paul's closing prayer for this church is in view of the return of Jesus. He left them with a prayer that God would prepare them to be ready for that day. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prayer. There's also teaching here we can glean. What is sanctification? What's well, growing in holiness? At the second coming of Jesus, God wants his people to be sanctified completely. Sanctification, growth and holiness, it's a, it's a process. It plays out starting at the moment of your conversion and goes on to the rest of your life or until Jesus returns. It's different from justification, which happens in a moment. Salvation initially comes in a moment. You repent and believe in Jesus in a moment. And when you first repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of all of your sins in that moment. The righteousness of Jesus accredited to your account in that moment, filled with the Holy Spirit of God in that moment, and in that moment, the process of sanctification begins. Growth and holiness, and it continues on. Paul's praying for their growth over this process. He's reminding them of their confidence in God of peace to, to completely sanctify them, which means every area of your life to grow in holiness, your, your thoughts, the attitudes of your heart, your words, your actions, your life at home, your life at church, your life at work, all of who you are, seeking to honor God and please Him and walk in holiness. That's what God wants. That's why Paul prays for their whole spirit and soul and body to be kept blameless. He's speaking there of the whole person. Now, there are two parts to a human being, that which is material, the outer, and then the inner person, which is immaterial. Spirit and soul are used interchangeably to refer to the same thing, the inner person. And throughout Scripture, we see them used interchangeably. The whole point here, God saves the whole person. He's sanctifying the whole person. On that last day, when Jesus returns, the whole person, soul and body, will stand before Him. We covered that at the end of chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians. And therefore, Paul prays for them to be ready for the final judgment to be kept, to stand blameless before Jesus on that last day, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. God wants complete holiness, and that may be overwhelming to consider. Growth in holiness, a process for the rest of your life, every area of your life, thoughts, words, attitudes, actions, all of who you are. You may hear that. You may even be tempted to worry. How is this going to be possible? Paul answers that in a beautiful, succinct statement of assurance in verse 24. How is that possible? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. A beautiful verse of assurance. When it comes to walking in holiness, Christian, you are not left to yourself. You're never on your own. It's not like you're saved by grace and you're sanctified by your works. That's not how it works. Your sanctification is entirely by God's grace. Yes, He produces good works 
through the power of His Holy Spirit in you. But it's all a work of the Spirit of God, entirely of the grace of God. Paul Paul answers this, this question that when it comes to walking in holiness, He will surely do it. God will see to it. While every Christian has a responsibility to obey God, to pursue holiness, look at where the chief responsibility is placed here. He will surely do it. The one who called you and saved you, He will sustain you. God's faithfulness, not your faithfulness, is the foundation of Christian assurance. He's the one who's making you holy. He's the one who's preparing you for that last day. This leaves no room for confidence in the flesh, and it leaves no room for boasting. Your growth and holiness, entirely a work of God's grace. Some people hear that and they get uncomfortable. I was talking to my Uber driver last week. He's Muslim from Jordan explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ to him, and of explaining how Christianity is different from Islam, that we have assurance in Christianity of our salvation, that we're not the ones working to try to do enough good things to make ourselves pleasing to God, but rather we repent of our sin, put our faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way to be forgiven. He goes, so what, that's it? You're just forgiven and that's it? Just go on and live your life? Talked about Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Some people hear that and think, well, that's it. I said, well, no, if you've been saved and called to holiness, you'll therefore live in that holiness, the Spirit of God living inside of you. Lest you think that this assurance will keep you from caring about holiness, look at how the letter ends. Several instructions. Verse 25, prayer. Verse 26, fellowship. Verse 27, the Word of God. I love that. He will surely do it. Verse 25, he calls them to to spiritual disciplines. He closes with commands of spiritual disciplines. After giving assurance, God will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Fellowship, verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. You don't need to do that today. It's not how we do that culturally here. We give handshakes and hugs. You can do that if you want to. It was a kiss on the forehead or cheek, but somebody might not like that. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss means that's a familial greeting. You're a church family. Give yourself to fellowship. Come together regularly and share fellowship and unity in Jesus. Display that unity. And finally, verse 27, we see the Word of God. I put you under oath before the Lord. Have this letter read to all the brothers. Hearing the Word of God was of vital importance then, just like it is today. Paul closes with assurance. God is in control. He will surely do it. And... He closes with responsibility. The gifts of spiritual disciplines of prayer, fellowship, hearing the Word of God. Meaning God uses these ordained means, prayer, fellowship, the Word, your responsibility. Give yourself continually to these means. His responsibility, praise the Lord. He will surely do it. Chris Baptist Church, this is another book of the Bible completed, the, the 16th book I've had the privilege of preaching here in this church. And together with other pastors, we've completed 18 books of the Bible here in these seven plus years. 
As we hear God's word, may we heed the message of Thessalonians. Keep growing. Keep going. Don't forget the whole way Christ and His grace are with you. A short benediction that I leave you with there in verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for comfort and assurance that comes from the joy and the truth of the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us as your people to grow and to walk in the holiness to which you've called us. Lord, we pray you'd remind us of our assurance, lead us away from any confidence in the flesh, lead us away from any boasting in what we've done. Rather, may we find confidence and assurance that you will surely do it. You will sustain us until the end. Your grace is enough. Christ is enough. May we rejoice in him in Jesus' name. Amen.